Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require any assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your host for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, How Healthcare Disparities May Influence Your Cancer Treatment and Care. And today's program is a partnership with the Intercultural Cancer Council and the National Minority uh, Quality Forum. And I really want to thank them for partnering with us on this incredibly important program that we're, that, um, with such incredible speakers we have today. Um, and today's program um, is uh, supported by Bristol Myers Squibb and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support. We have on the program today over 158 participants who come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants in the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And we are delighted that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Edith Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is Clinical Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology, Department of Medical Oncology, Director, Center to Eliminate Cancer Disparities, Associate Director, Diversity Affairs, Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Jefferson, the 116th President, National Medical Association. And Dr. Mitchell will be addressing how race may impact your access to care. It's my great privilege now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, and thank you for, this, for organizing this most important program today. And thanks for the opportunity for me to work with uh, such an illustrious uh, panel uh, today. So... Uh, cancer incidence and outcomes vary considerably between race, racial, and ethnic groups. Non-Hispanic blacks are disproportionately burdened with the most cancer types, having the highest death rate and the lowest survival of any uh, group in the United States. There are other racial and ethnic groups that also have increased incidence in some cancers and decreased survival. And that includes uh, the uh, Native American population, uh, some um, individuals from uh, Hawaii, as well as uh, Alaskan Natives. So it's very important for us to understand this but also to make plans uh, so that we can uh, not have the same information five years from now. We want to see that we are improving health care and cancer care for everybody in the United States. Racial health disparities are complex and have been identified at every step of the cancer care continuum from um, preventive services, uh, early diagnosis, treatment, and follow-up and survival. There are some clinical factors that you will hear about later uh, from other panelists, but there are also some non-clinical factors, such as structural racism, socioeconomic status, have also been shown to be important and have been shown to promote exposure to cancer risk factors such as obesity, decreased access to fresh foods, and increased alcohol intake. The cancer care mortality among non-Hispanic blacks may reflect underuse of some of these preventive strategies such as vaccination and screening, uh, which all of these can result in a more extensive disease and later stages at diagnosis uh, and underuse of uh, cancer-directed therapies. So inequities in the quality of care, including 
access to health care, receipt of recommended care, also contribute to the excess of burden, the excess burden of cancer-related deaths among non-Hispanic Blacks. So it's very important that we understand and target the causes of these observed differences in access to screening, care, and treatment. Uh, utilizing services that we know work and afford opportunities for better cancer care. So we've got a lot of individuals who have um, um, care issues, and therefore for each community, these may be different. So they may not be the same all over, and therefore it's very important for communities to uh, assess the problems, for individual persons to assess and make sure we are therefore incorporating the standards that we know about and uh, can utilize in terms of prevention, early diagnosis, treatment, and follow-up. So very, very important. Uh, for individuals, uh, perceived racism by patients can also undermine the physician-patient relationship and ultimately result in mistrust and refusal to proceed with recommended treatments. So understanding each other, making sure that we have access. Uh, housing discrimination is another factor because for many communities, there may be no access or limited access to cancer care, and therefore uh, this can be a factor in relationship to understanding where care is located and how we can assess care. So continued progress toward equitable outcomes will require expanding access and participation in cancer prevention, early detection, and treatment for all Americans. Representation in clinical trials is also an important factor. And I recommend to individuals, seek your medical care, continue your preventive services, get your mammograms or uh, PAP smears or uh, HPV testing or combination. There is also really good lung cancer screening and multiple avenues for colorectal cancer screening. So make sure everybody has received the appropriate cancer screening processes that uh, they need. Uh, don't stay away because of the worry of COVID-19. Um, the medical care facilities all have appropriate measures and guidelines to protect individuals from uh, COVID-19 as they seek and receive uh, medical care. So, so important uh, that you continue that. And in summary, uh, racial disparities in cancer care uh, reflect the interplay of several factors. It's not just uh, increased disease or increased biology of the disease. There are many factors. And these include, of course, the biological factors when they are appropriate, but also uh, lack of access and inappropriate use of access to all of the screening tools uh, and for other social determinants of health which include structural racism, access to preventive services and procedures, early detection, and access to treatment. All of these can affect cancer risk and outcome. So please utilize the services, get your COVID-19 vaccines, and don't stay away from your doctor's office or other healthcare facility because you are worried about COVID-19. 
our medical care facilities and healthcare offices are all protected and utilize appropriate CDC guidelines. So our patients and our staff are all protected against the risk of COVID-19. Get your vaccinations and follow the CDC guidelines and your local uh, health guidelines for protection against COVID-19. I thank you so much for the opportunity to participate in this program. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you so much, Dr. Mitchell. Outstanding presentation as always, and also just really a wonderful way to start this program today, really identifying so many of the key issues um, um, that, um, that we wish to have um, expanded upon during the program itself. So thank you so much for really providing a bit of a key keynote to some extent on this program today, so thank you. Um, and our next speaker um, is Dr. Lisa Newman. Dr. Newman is Chief Division of Breast Surgery, Director Interdisciplinary Breast Program, Medical Director and Founder, International Center for the Study of Breast Cancer Subtypes, Wild Cornell Medicine, New York Presbyterian Hospital Network, Second Vice President, American College of Surgeons. And Dr. Newman um, has really uh, spent her career um, addressing these issues as well, and um, she's going to be addressing today disproportionate burden of COVID-19 and cancer on people of color, how race may impact management of treatment side effects and pain, why COVID-19 vaccine equity has never been more important for people living with cancer, and concerns about safety of COVID vaccines. It's really my great privilege to um, introduce to all of you my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lisa Newman. Hi, Dr. Messner. It's such a pleasure and a privilege to be able to join this uh, amazing group of panelists that you've assembled. Now, thanks to our amazing research colleagues that developed the COVID-19 vaccine, including the extraordinary African-American virologist, Kismikia Corbett, thanks to the thousands of individuals from diverse communities and backgrounds that volunteered to participate in the vaccine research trials, and most recently, thanks to the nearly 150 million Americans that have already been fully vaccinated, we are now approaching herd immunity, and our country is emerging from the horrific coronavirus pandemic that killed nearly 4 million individuals worldwide and more than 600,000 patients here in the United States. However, our work in overcoming the far-reaching cascade of adverse consequences from the pandemic on overall public health is far from complete. Severity of the COVID-19 infection itself was much worse for communities of color. Hospitalizations and death rates from COVID were two to three times higher in African-American, Hispanic, Latinx, and American Indian, Native American individuals. Explanations for these disparities are multifactorial, and they are substantially related to the social determinants of health that will be described in greater detail by Maria Chi during this teleconference. Individuals from communities of color are more likely to reside in urban neighborhoods with higher population density, they are more likely to utilize public transportation, and they accounted disproportionately for our essential personnel workforce that really kept the country running through the pandemic surges. All of these factors contributed to minority racial ethnic groups having larger magnitude exposures to the virus and fewer opportunities to protect themselves through social distancing and shelter-in-place policies. Comorbidities such as obesity, hypertension, and cardiopulmonary disease are also more prevalent among communities of color, and all of these medical problems are risk factors for worse outcomes among patients diagnosed with COVID-19 infection. For all of these reasons, we are now obligated to work even harder for vaccination programs among communities of color. We need to break this cycle of higher infection rates in the very same communities that are most vulnerable to suffer disproportionately from the effects of the virus. Unfortunately, however, we've witnessed lagging vaccination rates among communities of color, but I am happy to report that this gap is closing. I'm extremely grateful to all of the advocacy and public health experts that have worked so diligently and so tirelessly in disseminating vaccination information and implementing vaccination programs throughout our diverse communities. 
these vaccines are safe and they are effective. As a surgical breast oncologist, I'm particularly concerned about the impact of the pandemic on breast cancer disparities. The National Cancer Institute projects that by the year 2030, we will see an excess 10 million deaths from breast cancer and colorectal cancer as a direct result of the pandemic on cancer care. During the height of the pandemic surge in 2020, we had to completely shut down our mammography screening programs, and we had to discourage patients from visiting outpatient clinics for evaluation of potential cancer symptoms. It was heartbreaking to do this since we're so accustomed to preaching about cancer early detection strategies, but we were forced to take these unprecedented steps so that we could divert the bulk of our healthcare resources to management of the COVID patients and because we needed our patient population to shelter in place so that we could dampen the virus spread. As a consequence, we now have to accept the fact that many patients have had a delay in their breast cancer diagnosis and a delay in treatment. The pandemic social distancing policies had other cancer-related effects. Our research laboratories had to close temporarily, and many laboratories shifted from cancer research to COVID research. Our community outreach, advocacy, and cancer research fundraising programs were also hit hard. Many of these programs rely upon public gatherings, and although the pivot to virtual outreach was helpful, it certainly has not been a perfect substitute. For many reasons, we can therefore predict that individuals from communities of color will account disproportionately for the millions of excess breast cancer deaths that are estimated to occur by the end of this decade, and I'll summarize just a few of these reasons. First, the COVID recession has been disproportionately harsh on minority unemployment rates. The country has seen some recovery from the near-total economic shutdown that accompanied the pandemic shelter-in-place mandate, but this recovery has lagged substantially among African Americans and Hispanic Latinx communities, which already faced pre-existing unemployment disparities. These higher jobless rates mean loss of employment-based insurance, and these insurance losses affect the individual as well as their entire family. We are just now starting to see the impact of these most recent unemployment disparities on worsening breast cancer disparities, and these trends are unfortunately likely to continue. The patients that have already resumed routine healthcare practices first have tended to be the most affluent patients, and the minorities are underrepresented among these financially secure patients with private insurance. A substantial proportion of our minority and publicly insured patients have had a delay in resuming mammography screening, and so the more advanced stage distribution that we previously saw for women of color compared to white American women does seem to be getting worse. Moreover, many of these women experiencing the most extensive financial challenges have yet to resume breast health care because they have other economic priorities that have, been, that have to be addressed for themselves and for their families. Secondly, our safety net and public hospitals have also been disproportionately devastated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Most of these hospitals are concentrated in urban neighborhoods where the pandemic was most severe, and meeting the critical care needs of COVID patients was extremely costly. Most public hospitals have precarious budgets to begin with, and the unanticipated expenses of COVID left many of them on the brink of bankruptcy. These same public hospitals deliver safety net mammography screening and oncology treatment to our indigent breast cancer patients, and they provide care to a disproportionately high volume of African-American and Hispanic Latinx patients. Between the financial impact of COVID and the difficulties of catching up with backlogged mammography and clinic schedules in the context of social distancing requirements, these hospitals face more difficulties than ever in meeting the cancer needs of communities of color. Also, as you'll hear about from Dr. Fleischman, because of the digital divide, telemedicine healthcare prospects can be more challenging in the socioeconomically disadvantaged neighborhoods where minority patients reside disproportionately. 
Third, even our most affluent academic and university hospitals have been hit hard by the COVID economic recession, and this means that their cancer research programs have suffered losses and setbacks. I'm fearful that the disparities research and community outreach programs will be the most vulnerable to budget cuts as these academic centers try to balance their financial plans. Disparities in breast cancer research uh, disparities research in breast cancer carries heightened relevance because of the need to understand why a biologically aggressive form of the disease known as triple negative breast cancer is twice as common among African American compared to white American women. We desperately need to study the genetics of triple negative breast cancer related to African ancestry as we strive to eliminate the 40% higher breast cancer mortality rates that are experienced in the African American compared to white American female communities. Triple negative breast cancers are more likely to require chemotherapy compared to non-triple negative breast cancers, and COVID infections among immunocompromised chemotherapy patients are even more life-threatening. This is yet another reason why COVID vaccination pro programs are especially important for African-American women. As I mentioned previously, many advocacy and community education programs have relied heavily on large-scale public gatherings for fundraising as well as breast health awareness programs, and these activities, like so many others, have had to shift to virtual Internet-based programs. The digital divide is more than a rural versus urban phenomenon, and we see significant differences in access to high-speed broadband internet between households of communities of color compared to white Americans, even within cities. This translates into greater challenges reaching many African American and Hispanic Latinx families with important educational messages regarding breast health awareness and cancer screening, as well as treatment services. But by working together, we can overcome the obstacles created by COVID with regard to addressing breast cancer disparities. I've been extremely gratified to see the powerful partnerships created between the breast cancer advocacy and public health communities. Many African-American and Hispanic Latinx breast cancer survivorship organizations are entrusted members of our diverse communities. By working creatively with these groups, we've been able to leverage that trust in disseminating information regarding the safety of COVID vaccination programs. By working with our hospital leadership, we can make sure that our disparities research programs and community outreach programs are protected. And by working with policymakers, we can support Medicaid expansion programs that are now even more important than ever in supporting our socioeconomically disadvantaged patients and our safety net hospitals. So I will close here, but I do thank all of you for your time and attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Newman. That was really outstanding and just really uh, covering so many so important issues that um, I, that um, that this uh, that uh, COVID has brought to the fore in terms of its impact on cancer screening and and all the recommendations that you've made in terms of people really getting the vaccine and being screened again, going back to the healthcare settings. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. Just outstanding. Um, and. Our next speaker is Dr. Maria Chi, and Dr. Chi is Senior Social Worker, NYU Langone Health, Perlmutter Cancer Center. And Dr. Chi will be addressing what are social determinants of health, food and pharmacy deserts, food insecurity, practical resources to increase your access to food, and the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. It's really my great privilege to um, turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chi. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. It's so nice to join everyone here today. Um, and as Drs. Mitchell and Newman um, had briefly mentioned um, social determinants of health, I'm going to go a little bit into a little more depth about, about those factors. So what are social determinants of health? They're really conditions in the environment where you were born and raised, where you may go to school or work. Um, they're the immediate environmental factors um, that, you, that affect your daily life. And they affect um, your quality of life and your everyday functioning and also some of your health risks and health outcomes. 
Um, and there are five main categories of social determinants of health, and these include economic, um, what are the job opportunities in your environment, um, how stable financially are you, what kind of access do you have to uh, wage-earning jobs um, that pay a living wage, um, what are your educational opportunities, um, what kind of access do you have to quality education, to school supplies, to technology. And then there's the healthcare um, category, and of course, access and quality to healthcare is so huge. As as we, you know, was really illuminated during the pandemic. Do you have access to nutritious food, places for physical activity or exercise, uh, parks? Do you have access to medical providers or specialists in your immediate area? And your neighborhood, your immediate physical environment um, is another main category that is a social determinant of health. Things like uh, safe housing and, again, access to transportation. What is your exposure to pollution or access to clean water? And then finally, there's the social and community dimension of social determinants of health. And that can uh, really um, again, impact quality of health through things like exposure to racism and discrimination. So you can see how these factors may contribute not just to health, but also to disparities and inequities, um, as Drs. Mitchell and Newman uh, just outlined. And so not only are risk of getting certain diseases like cancer or COVID-19 um, or other illnesses, but what is your experience um, and outcome with those, with those illnesses? How do those compare to people living in different environments? Um, and I think it's important to point out that it's not just a matter of individuals making better choices or healthier choices. I think the social determinants of health really remind us that it's a public health issue. It's a society issue. Um, it's not just about individual choices, but also our access to things, our access to healthy food, clean water, to hospitals, to cancer treatment centers uh, without having to travel hundreds of miles. So it's really incumbent on our society and our larger community to plan better, right, to purposely design and create our living environments that promote our health and reduce some of these disparities. And similarly, another factor in our environment which can really impact our health and which society certainly can play a role in are what we call food and pharmacy deserts. And basically, these are neighborhoods with very few or limited number of pharmacies, grocery stores, or markets, where you may have to travel a great distance to reach those amenities. Um, and that might be dependent on your access to owning a car or even public transportation. In cities, this is considered having to go more than half a mile. And in rural areas, it's considered having to go farther than 10 miles to access these resources. Um, and the, again, the transportation itself may be out of reach. Um, with pharmacies, I think especially it's, this is difficult for older people who have made more, may have more acute or chronic medical problems, um, as we found during COVID, that, um, or you know, even people with just mobility issues or are homebound for some reason. Um, you may be able, unable to get to a local pharmacy or hospital or um, not be able to pick up your medications because you're maybe immunocompromised from, from treatment or cancer. And that, of course, goes for grocery stores as well. So as unfortunately we found out there are even more barrier, barriers this past year to basic resources. And especially with regard to food, uh, food deserts are areas that lack access to healthy food in particular. We know that junk food, unfortunately, is cheaper and usually more plentiful than fresh or organic fruits and veggies in this area, in these areas. Um, and unfortunately, these deserts have been growing over the past decade, even before COVID, um, due to the economy and, and financial issues. And so uh, some of these pharmacies and grocery stores um, that can no longer sustain themselves are closing, especially in lower-income areas. And, of course, we, this is a problem because, especially with food deserts, this contributes to food insecurity, right? Um, and that, again, is not having consistent access to healthy or safe, nutritious food. And this affects approximately 41 million Americans. So if you do experience this, you're definitely not alone. And the good news is there are resources to help you access more nutritious food. Um, there are national, local, and statewide food banks and food pantries, which might be known as food distribution distribution programs or emergency assistance programs. Um, you might, these might be administered
administered through local social service agencies uh, or community programs. And if you Google food distribution programs um, in your area, you're likely to come up with resources. If uh, you don't use the internet, you can certainly call uh, either 311, 411, um, whatever the local information number is in your area. Um, and certainly even the old school way with phone books or local directories, they should also have information on some of these essential resources. There may be soup kitchens in your area, or um, these are often distributed through churches, other religious organizations, or senior centers. Um, there may be food stamps, otherwise known as SNAP, or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is a national program. Um, there might be Meals on Wheels, again, a local and national program for seniors. Um, and similarly, a service called God's Love We Deliver um, is a nonprofit organization here locally in New York uh, for people with chronic illness that delivers um, free and healthy meals. Um, and there might be something similar like that. So you might have to be a little creative in what you ask or uh, reach out for, but there are resources. In addition to a national program called WIC for women, infants, and children, and this gives vouchers that can be redeemed for healthy foods um, at the grocery store. This offers free school breakfasts and lunches for kids. Um, and even during the weekends and summer, there are free meal programs listed on the U.S. Department of Agriculture website. And finally, if you sort of are not sure where to start with all of these programs, you can always uh, go back to your treatment center, hospital, um, doctor's office, see if there is a social worker, case manager, patient navigator, nurse case manager, um, anyone who can help you locate and identify these resources and how to find them in your community. And certainly calling the national cancer organization such as Cancer Care um, for help in locating these resources is also a good way to go. And finally, um, we, you know, during COVID, we've certainly seen an increased role for telehealth and telemedicine appointments. Um, there was an uptick in, in telehealth appointments, um, which means we could get healthcare-related services through the phone, internet, virtual platforms, rather than having to travel face uh, in person or face-to-face. -face. And this can certainly help when you live far away from your providers and maybe can't easily access transportation or can't travel due to a compromised immune system or maybe have childcare issues or can't take take time off of work or you're simply feeling too ill to travel. So I think the pandemic really showed us that um, all, all, many appointments, healthcare appointments, um, interventions, advice, monitoring, et cetera, um, with providers who may be long distance can be held uh, in these alternate ways. And this is, represents a possibly a real delivery in our healthcare, uh, sorry, a real shift in our healthcare delivery, um, which also includes mental health care. And that of course has been so important during the pandemic. And actually, pre-COVID, about 25% of Americans used telehealth uh, visits, and during COVID, that rose to about 49%. And telehealth included not just um, video, but also just audio, just you know, regular telephone appointments. Um, and that includes a 117% increase among people of color. Um, during the pandemic, it was also easier for people with Medicare, so mostly seniors, to access telehealth because um, healthcare providers were reimbursed for these visits, often at, you know, at the same rate as they would have been in person. So that, that policy change was very helpful and allowed uh, more than 25% of Medicare recipients to use telehealth, um, and including that includes more than 30% of people of color with Medicare. So that helped to reduce some of the racial disparities in healthcare access. Of course, we would you know, want the, the reduction in these disparities to continue and people need regular access to either the phone or the internet. So we have to find a way to improve, improve that more broadly. Um, and telehealth is not necessarily the, the right type of intervention for all health conditions. Obviously, you still have to come to your treatment center to get your infusions or your radiation, et cetera. But it really can help to eliminate some barriers um, post-pandemic. And I think it offers some promising new options as we figure out this new world. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chi. That was really outstanding and very comprehensive and really explaining you know, all, the, all the components of social determinants of health, which I think a lot of people don't, they hear that term, but they don't understand all the components of it. And then going through all the details and, and how to access uh, food if you don't have food and, and all the resources out there for everyone to take advantage of. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker, 
is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, author, researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman will be addressing how housing, cost of treatment, and care afford your health, influence of the local and regional environment in which you live, guidelines to communicate with your healthcare team, and roadmap to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you all for a lot of good information. This is an extraordinarily timely and um, complex topic uh, to handle, and I am uh, thrilled that Cancer Care and our supporters have uh, wanted us to do this um, in a teleconference format. Um, you've gotten a lot of information so far about some of the practical disparities. Um, I was hoping to just augment a little bit on, on some of those. As far as the housing disparities, um, over the past number of years, uh, the media especially has brought to our attention how in some larger cities all across the United States, um, interstates have been built through often um, areas uh, where the un underserved and underinsured have lived, creating not only transportation uh, barriers to get uh, health care as well as to go shopping and all of the things you had heard before, but also um, higher levels of air pollution that can worsen especially the um, pulmonary function, lung function of uh, patients who uh, get um, are being treated for cancer as well as may actually predispose people to get certain cancers like lung cancer. So um, it's not just a matter of the location, but it's what's happening in the surrounding environment. Uh, as we heard, the getting um, proper foods, particularly fresh fruits and vegetables, which is something that both us in the cancer world, as well as cardiology, as well as even uh, the basic good nutrition information from the federal government all believe should be uh, an important part of our daily diets. Sometimes those things are hard to get, especially when the transportation is compromised, um, not only by the location and by the interstates, but by uh, perhaps the lack of good, good reliable public transportation. Also, uh, the environment can be extremely important. Um, another limitation that has not been discussed is um, limitation as far as our insurances. Um, despite all of the gains that the whole country has made with the Affordable Care Act, we do know that um, certain compromises were made when the uh, bill was passed, and that included allowing uh, certain networks to be developed across the country. And what we have seen is that um, uh, not everybody has access to providers all over all over the country or all, all over their state because Medicaid is often um, limits how much um, uh, somebody can go out of state for their care, and that can be part of the ACA, the Affordable Care Act program. Um, it's an issue. Uh, it's an issue because uh, the center of excellence that's um, designated in someone's insurance may not have a super specialist in certain kinds of cancer. We know that over the years, cancer has become more subspecialized when people um, need to see um, uh, cancer providers who deal with a single form of cancer only for uh, either an expert opinion or treatments that may not be given uh, everywhere else. Um, and uh, that's an additional barrier that we find um, clear across the country, varies from state to state, but is, is rather, um, rather generalized. So uh, in addition to the, the food and the transportation and the air, um, the disparities in insurance can also be problematic. Uh, the other thing I wanted to address that hasn't been uh, spoken about earlier is the barriers that can go with telehealth. Uh, we are all um, happy, I guess, to have had telehealth throughout the recent pandemic. I'm not sure what we could have done without it, 
but knowing um, both its benefits and limitations has been problematic. In the clinic I work in in uh, Southern California, where we only treat people without insurance or who are underinsured, when we tried to switch to telehealth um, last March, which we did, we found that pretty much all of our patients had access to uh, voice calls on on their cell phones or on a home phone, and some cell phones had the ability to um, send and receive text messages, but did not have the ability to get video. They weren't uh, smartphones, as they're called, and we were limited to doing things that we could on on voice calls, sending back uh, still photos, uh, to the providers so that we could see if there was a rash or something that needed um, to be looked at. At least we could get a visual picture, but we weren't able to participate in a full telehealth program using a video visit, uh, even though our electronic medical record would uh, support it because people's devices just didn't have the ability to make those kinds of calls. So that's an additional disparity that we found um, uh, uh, by surprise. Um, as far as the issue of open notes, this is a rather long discussion, but as, uh, in, the, in recent times with the electronic medical records, many of the larger electronic medical record systems that the provider's office will use has a, what's called a patient portal or a patient door, I guess portal like puerta in Spanish. Um, The portal allows us all to to look at uh, doctor's notes, um, uh, lab results, and imaging results that come in. This is great for um, all of us to have access to that level of uh, information. We can actually print out those reports in in, in most of the systems. But but again, because of the limitations of the devices and the limitations of broadband in many neighborhoods, not everybody who lives in underserved areas uh, or people who live in um, areas that still do not have broadband, which is a certain good percentage of our country, can have access to uh, open notes. Open notes um, can be problematic in that sometimes the results are posted before the provider has a chance to explain the context of them. Frequently we see during cancer that um, there should be an abnormal value, although that sounds kind of odd to say, but if somebody's in the middle of chemotherapy and radiation therapy and their uh, white blood cell count goes down, um, it should. And if it were in the normal range, that's something that would need the provider's attention. So in addition to the idea that we all need to have access to someone who can help us interpret um, the uh, notes that we see, the lab tests that were results that we get, the x-ray results that we get, all the imaging studies, uh, having, having a, a broadband access and a device that can uh, actually enter those uh, patient portals is also really important. So we find that despite all of the um, really uh, amazing things we we have been able to do with technology during the recent pandemic, it has exposed that there is somewhat more of a divide than um, many of us realized before, and these are areas that uh, need good, solid attention because they are really, really important and unfair um, areas of disparity. With that, I will turn the program over to Dr. Messner, and thank you, everybody, for your time. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. Outstanding presentation and really, again, elaborating further on, 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 on these very important topics that people um, are living with and, and ways to cope with them. So I know there will be questions for you as well during the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Thelma Hurd. Dr. Hurd is Director of Medical Education and Professor of Public Health, UC Merced, and she is adjunct professor of surgery at UCSF. Um, and Dr. Um, Hurd is also very connected to the Intercultural Cancer Council, um, and um, we're delighted to have her speaking with us today as a, a partner organization on this program. But she's going to do more than that. She's going to discuss the benefits of COVID-19 vaccine, vaccine, taking COVID-19 vaccine on schedule or adherence, and building trust to increase population diversity in clinical trials. 
uh, very, a topic of great interest to Dr. Hurd. And also, um, she will talk to you about the Intercultural Cancer Council. It's a, their mission and vision. So it's really my great privilege and honor to uh, turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hurd. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to join my colleagues today in this important discussion. I think in terms of addressing vaccine adherence, we need to first step back and take a look at the current context of COVID-19. Specifically, let's answer a few questions. Where are we currently in our battle against COVID? Well, as of June, as of this month in the United States, we are currently diagnosing about a little less than 15,000 new cases per week compared to 240,000 in January and reporting only, and I say that in quotes, 340 deaths per week compared to 4,000 per day in early 2021. However, despite this progress, African Americans and Latinx persons as well as Asian Pacific Islanders are still have, still have and bear a disproportionate burden of COVID-19 mortality due to social determinants of health and comorbid disease prevalence, as my, as my colleagues have so eloquently presented. So what are the threats to our progress when we think about managing COVID-19? I think that our most um, emerging threat is the biology of emerging variants. I think we're all aware of the alpha variant that was described, that was first uh, described in the UK and has been found to be 50% more transmissible than the primary strain that was detected and uh, reported from China when, this out, when the uh, pandemic first started. And more recently, the Delta variant, which was first reported in, in India, is now um, felt to be 50% more transmissible than the alpha variant, such that overall, this, this, uh, the transmissibility of this particular variant is somewhere uh, approaching 80 plus percent. Furthermore, we know that the epidemiology of the Delta variant is showing that it occurs in, more, in younger patients as well as more affluent persons. In the U.S., while the Delta, vari while the Delta variant is 90% of disease in the U.K., in the U.S., it currently represents only 10% of our COVID infections. However, uh, in April, when we were first started to, report, to see reports of this, it represented 5%. So its, prevalent, its, uh, its prevalence is growing rapidly. So when we think about this, the next component is, well, what do we have to treat it? And obviously we know that we have um, not only medical treatment, but uh, vac uh, vaccines. And we currently, as we all know, we have uh, three vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, as well as uh, the a third vaccine, Johnson & Johnson. I'm not going to really discuss J&J &J today, and my comments are focusing primarily on Pfizer and Moderna. Um, as we all know, Pfizer and Moderna require two doses given at 21 and 28 days, uh, uh, given 21 and 28 days apart, respectively. We have two important studies that are uh, focusing on the vaccine effectiveness. The first uh, re uh, study that was just reported in MMWR, the healthcare uh, personnel study, was a study of vaccine of, uh, effectiveness among healthcare personnel, our highest risk, um, in 33 sites across 25 states, and this is their first interim analysis. What we have found with, vac with, with vaccine um, is that in terms, of, in terms of preventing symptom positive disease, um, the vaccines are 82% effective after a single dose and 94% effective after two doses. When we look at the demographics of this study, three-quarters of the people were young, only 2% over age 65, 67% were white, and 76% had underlying medical conditions. And thus, this study is slightly um, skewed in that direction. A second study, however, that, was, that we're all aware of, specifically looking at the Pfizer vaccine, is, is, uh, was, was uh, recently published in New England Journal of Medicine out of Israel, which showed that the Pfizer uh, vaccine specifically um, offered an overall 57% effective, uh, effective, uh, uh, effectiveness within their population, which was lower than what we found in the healthcare personnel study. However, it was a more diverse population. When we then looked at the specific aspects of this related to infection, 
Um, it was 94 per, nine, over 90% effective in preventing symptomatic infection and severe disease, 87% effective in preventing hospitalization after two doses for these three. And then um, in terms of preventing death, after one dose, the Pfizer vaccine prevents it in 72% of people. So the next question is, we have a vaccine, but we also have an effective vaccine, but we also have the emergence of new of the Alpha and Delta variants. And so where do we stand with vaccine effectiveness in that particular, in, this, in the setting of new variants? Um, on June the 14th, uh, the Lancet published an article from the uh, uh, public, health Depart- uh, public Health Program from Scotland um, uh, looking at the effectiveness uh, comparing um, uh, Pfizer uh, to the Abbott uh, vaccine. I'm only going to focus on the Pfizer data, but specifically it found that um, Pfizer was, was effective in preventing infection after two doses in about 94% of people. However, with the Delta variant, again, the variant that was recently first described from India, it was only 88% effective. Similarly, we found there were, um, in terms of effectiveness, in terms of prevent, preventing hospitalization, uh, again, 95% effective for after two doses for the alpha variant, decreasing to 88% for the delta variant. And thus what we can see is, the, is that while it is still acceptably, acceptably effective, we can see that there is a decreasing, um, there is a slight decrease in effectiveness based upon the new variants, which is why very emerging variants present such a problem. So the next question that we get to is, well, we have vaccines, we do have some emerging evidence with variants, but where do we stand in terms of communities and our populations? Who wants, who, wants, who wants to get the vaccine? Currently, we know that about two-thirds of African Americans, Latinx, and white persons, as well as urban, suburban, and rural community members want the vaccine. If we look, if we look at this in terms of age, eight in 10 people over the age of 65, seven in 10 age 50 to 64, and five in 10 less than age 50 are all wanting the vaccine. So it isn't a question per se of demand. Yes, one can look at the other aspect in terms of those who are not wanting it, and we're going to address this in a few, mo- in a few moments. When we look at who's, the next question we need to be thinking about is who is actually getting the vaccine? And while our, our uh, prior presentations have shown that 51% of our country have had at least one dose and 46.46% have had two doses, garnering the ethnic data is, a, is, is more difficult. Um, one of the barriers is that the CDC is sharing national but not state-level ethnicity data. Therefore, it's difficult to tell which geographic regions of the, which areas are really making significant progress. Furthermore, we know that less than six in 10 people getting vaccinated reported their race or ethnicity. And among this, we can see that uh, among those reporting, about 9% were African-American, 15% Latinx, only 1% were American, uh, American Indian, Alaska Native, less than 1% were, were Pacific Islanders, specifically Hawaiians, and about 6% were Asians. This is compared to 57% of white persons who receive the vaccine, a striking disparity. However, given the current renewed efforts since January of 21 um, to increase vaccination, in the past two weeks, we, have, we now know that of all vaccines administered in the past two weeks, 29% have gone to Latinx, 12% to African Americans, and 7% to Asian. And this accounts for 40% of all vaccines that have been administered. So. If we're talking about getting vaccinated, I'm sorry, so the next question is why aren't people getting vaccinated? There is an excellent study that was, uh, report that was, reduced, that was released last week from the Kaiser Family Foundation that really, really delves into the reasons that um, minority populations are not getting, are, are, have lower vaccine uptake. And specifically, there are, there are five different areas. First of all, there are myths. Um, that you can get COVID from the vaccine, that it contains fetal cells, causes infertilities, infertility, um, will change your DNA, um, or if you've had COVID, you don't need to be vaccinated. 
Also, unvaccinated people are feeling an unfair pressure from those who are vaccinated, as well as national policies for not being vaccinated. Um, There's another concern that um, if people are not sure if it's actually been adequately tested within their ethnic group. For example, it was reported that if someone felt somewhat confident that the testing uh, that, that the, um, uh, the, the, that the uh, initial clinic, the initial trials explored the side effects of the vaccine within specifically for their ethnic group, they were two times more likely to be vaccinated. And this brought out in terms of African Americans, uh, for those who felt it was who had some level of confidence. It translated to 58% among African Americans who were vaccinated versus 24 who were not, and 63% among Latinx uh, persons versus who were vaccinated versus those who were not. Another major barrier are the the requirements, especially with the Latinx population, for for government ID um, to not only make an appointment but to get a vaccine. If we look at terms of government ID. Four in 10 were were asked to provide government ID to even make a vaccination appointment, and five in 10 had to produce the uh, ID in order to get the vaccine. Um, Three in 10 people were required to show proof of health insurance to make an appointment, and two in 10 were required to, to present it at the time of vaccine. Finally, one in 10 were required to provide a social security number to make an appointment, and two in 10 were required to uh, provide it to get the vaccine. Finally, we know that, um, we know that knowledge, and it, that there's an, a significant need to improve knowledge. And we're making progress on that. Since the beginning of April, there's been an improvement in the number of people who are reporting um, knowledge of where to get vaccines. This has risen from 53 to 69%. And those who are reporting that they have enough information to make a decision to get a vaccination, and that has risen from 67 to 78%. So there is progress being made. Um, however, as while we are making progress, we need to understand that new variants remain a threat and we need to focus on education and access issues to build trust and implement culturally sensitive approaches to increase vaccination rates. The Intercultural Cancer Council is very focused on really, um, is very focused and committed to working with our partners around the country as we deal with this COVID crisis as, 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 and as it relates to oncology patients. And uh, we look forward uh, to your questions and look forward to engaging um, the others in our field who want to um, eliminate the disparity of uh, COVID treatment and vaccination. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hurd. That was really outstanding and really, um, really much of what you said we really have its own talk on because it's so, there's so much more I know that you wanted to say. And thank you so much. This is amazing. We'll have plenty of questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. Um, and I'm Carolyn Messner, and I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services. Um, and um, so Cancer Care is a national uh, organization um, providing, it's a nonprofit organization, and we provide free programs and services. And we're primarily staffed by oncology social workers, about 35 of them providing um, support, um, and so many people call our HOPE line, and um, when they call our HOPE line, um, they get to speak to one of our oncology social workers, usually asking questions or concerns that they may have. Um, we also offer uh, a practical and financial assistance, as well as having a co-payment assistance program foundation. Um, and we also um, offer online support groups, a case management, we provide um, these workshops, about 75 of them per year on different topics, and we also have a number of different publications, just to give you a thumbnail sketch. And now we're going to have time for questions, and I'm going to bring our speakers on board, and we're going to um, uh, have you uh, have actually uh, Michelle will explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we're probably going to take online questions at this point, so Michelle, if you could just let people know how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question at this time, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. 
Um, and uh, there's a question um, for Dr. Hurd. There are often calls for more diversity in clinical trials. Um, and is there uh, suggestions in terms of how to um, uh, bring on board African Americans um, who have historically been underrepresented in research? Um, if you could comment on this. Uh, I think that there are there are there's a robust literature, uh, to say the least, in terms of what the barriers to African American participation have been. Um, I think that there have been. Uh, one one aspect are designing trials, really pragmatic trials, and trials that um, really address uh, the comorbidities that people that that many African Americans and minority populations have. Um, in terms of uh, building trust, I mean, this really has to occur at an institutional. Uh, really, building trust in the community that starts long before you approach patients for a clinical trial that really looks at it as an as a um, as a as a as a goal uh, just as you do with any other goals for for an entity in terms of working with the community bringing not bringing the community to the table or having them in the room but having a voice that truly impacts what happens at the table and in the room um, really uh, working, co-designing trials with communities, and not necessarily just key, key stakeholders, but with a broad um, spectrum of people within the community. Um, develop, you know, recruiting, uh, having faculty who are uh, who reflect uh, the, the uh, minority population, African, whether it's African American, Latino, Pacific Islander, American Indian, Alaska Native, having having faculty who are running the trials, um, who uh, in addition to the staff and people that are that are actually doing the work of the trial. Um, who are there to really meet and, and, and engage the community as true, seamlessly integrated um, partners in a transparent relationship. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, um, and um, Dr. Chi, how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected disparities even more? Um, well, I would say in terms of access, um, as, as uh, some of the other presenters mentioned, um, in particular, Dr. Fleischman had made an excellent point that, um, you know, while telehealth and telemedicine visits have increased, um, which included for mental health care, um, sometimes that um, still is not readily available um, for people if they don't have access to that kind of technology um, and certainly didn't just affect uh, people of color, African Americans, but um, did affect um, them a little bit harder and, um, and also lower income populations. And so I think um, that's, an, you know, that was sort of a, an exacerbation of an ongoing problem. Um, and then I think because of the, um, the rise in the need for mental health care and desire for mental health care and, and people initiating it, you know, re reaching out for that, for that uh, professional support, um, that sort of overburdened and already overburdened uh, mental health care system. And so um, for many people in, in different communities has made it more difficult um, for them to get a provider um, perhaps who accepts their particular insurance, um, who doesn't have a waiting list of, you know, six months. Um, and also, um, there really is a lack of people of color who are psychotherapists. Um, and so, um, people may not have been able to um, choose a provider that they feel comfortable with or that they um, would wish to engage in psychotherapy with. Excellent. Those are excellent points. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Fleischman, um, so um, the, the question is, um, So how do we address, um, let me see, this is, there are a lot of questions here. I'm just trying to pick the one that we can be the last question. Um, so this is, um, someone is commenting that the program is informative, but how do we disperse this information to those who are most impacted? If you want to comment on this, Dr. Fleischman, how do we get this information out to everyone who really needs to hear this information? Oh, sure. I am a firm believer in the informal networks. Uh, one of the things that we have learned, uh, particularly in cancer screenings and underserved areas, is community groups, church groups, barbershops, 
beauty parlors, any place where people meet with people they know and trust is a great way to get out information. Uh, the information needs to be accurate, of course, but it's a great way to get information out. And I would hope that anyone on the call takes this to the leaders of their community um, and that it is discussed in whatever forum is possible because that kind of uh, communication from trusted people is so much more um, taken seriously than something we can do on a, a mass basis with all of the difficulties with ha we're having getting correct information out through the media. So great information. Take it local. And I actually want to um, let, remind everyone that this program occurs live, but it also is recorded and is available on our website um, and so that anyone can then listen to it and listen to it with other groups of people as well. Some people already do this, but maybe some people don't know that they can do this and just want to remind all of you, you can share it with a friend um, and um, you'll be getting, all of you who participated today will get um, uh, uh, information about the podcast that will be on our Cancer Care website and you'll be able to listen to the program. Um, and I think what Dr. Fleischman says is really getting it into local communities is really important. Dr. Hurd, do you want to add to that as well? I would agree with the comments made thus far. Um, Thank you. Okay, well, thank you. I, I want to thank our speakers. You've really been phenomenal. And I want to thank our participants as well. This has been a remarkable program, I have to say, um, one of many programs that we'll be offering on health disparities. Um, and so I just encourage all of you to stay tuned. And I think you're going to be hearing more and more about this topic. I do um, want to, um, in, uh, we, in closing and just kind of wrapping things up, many of you have questions that you've yet to ask. So what I would recommend you do is the following. If you've asked a question, if you um, in listening um, have a question but didn't get to ask it, or if you were listening to the program and came up with a question, please take your questions back to your treating healthcare team. Remember, your healthcare team consists of many, many different disciplines, um, and so take your question back there. Also, please do feel comfortable calling the Intercultural Cancer Council, um, the um, the National Minority Quality Forum um, and, and Cancer Care with any of your questions or concerns you may have. And at the end of the program, well, probably tomorrow, you'll be getting a Survey Monkey evaluation, and we'll be giving you all the links to the different resources that you can utilize. Um, but I don't want anyone to sidestep your healthcare team. They are, of course, a very essential part of your care, and so definitely utilize them. But also, we have partner organizations, and we also have, um, and I think these partner organizations um, run a lot of programs on these topics as well, so that could be a great use to you. Um, and in also, I want to remind all of you that um, that your questions are very important, and please hold on to them and be sure you get them answered. You also can contact Cancer Care, um, our 800 number, speak to our staff, or for international participants, you can go to our website and post a question, and you'll be getting all the links to that information as well. I don't want anyone to leave the call feeling that you're alone. I want you to now know that you're part of this fairly large community of support, lots of organizations. We will send you in the SurveyMonkey a listing of some of the key organizations that you can contact for help and information. And um, I want to thank both the speakers and our participants, the participants for really asking such great questions, and I know there are many more that you'd like to ask. Um, and so um, it means we'll have to have a part two of this. But I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.